As we face a new year together, that's often a time in which people take stock of the direction their lives are going in and whether or not adjustments and uh, reconstruction needs to occur. I think we've all been somewhat in the midst of a COVID malaise, and it ain't over yet. But we need a word from God. Martin Luther said this. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. The Bible has hands. It lays hold of me. Would to God today in his mercy and grace, his word so perform its power upon us all as we gather. Hear now the word of the Lord as we're in Isaiah chapter 55. And we will read um, this passage, the entirety of the chapter, uh, the 13 verses of Isaiah chapter 55, as we think together about the power of God's living word and his life-giving word. Come, everyone who thirst, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend that, uh, your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear, that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today for help. 
We ask for the ministry and aid of your Spirit, whom you have given to us generously, the one who indwells us as the temple of the living God, your people. And we do ask that the Spirit who breathed out this word uh, will breathe it into us today, that he will open our minds and our hearts. He will remove obstacles that keep us from listening and hearing and heeding what you say. And we pray that you would get glory to yourself, that people would leave the building more impressed with you than anything else, and standing in awe of who you are, for you alone are worthy and great. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a rousing passage out of the book of Isaiah. It is one of my favorites, probably one of the top ten favorite passages I have in all of the Old Testament. But one Old Testament scholar compares chapter 54, the chapter that comes before this, to sort of the book of Revelation with its visions of the New Jerusalem and the people of God as inhabitants uh, during the consummation of all things. That same scholar said that chapter 55 is a lot like the Gospel of John in its passionate appeal to people to open up their eyes to the richness of the gifts that God is offering so freely and to grasp them with faith and repentance which uh, there is a while there is time. A sense of urgency here. That's why when I read the passage I emphasized the word come. It's not come. It's come. It's a passionate plea. Wake up. Get up out of your seat and come. That's what he's saying. And that's the, the emphatic nature of what he is bringing to the table today for us to hear. The central preoccupation of Isaiah chapter 55 is obviously with the word of God. The word of the Lord. And we have here an image of a feast. A banquet. And it's to be an understood as a metaphor for hearing of the word of the Lord. That's what is the matter with so many of us. That's why we're in such a malaise. That's why we're so spiritually weak. That's why our hearts are hardened or cold or distant or not excited about the things of God. Is we are fasting from the one thing we need more than anything else. And that is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is a living thing, a powerful thing, and it creates what it calls for, both faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, and repentance are produced by hearing. We have three comes in this passage, and we have three listens in this passage. Come and listen. Come and listen. One more time. Come and listen. That's what this passage is saying to us today. So first, let's look at the great banquet that we have. There's a threefold come, and it's like the cries of a street vendor. It's passionate, it's urgent, it's an appeal. Come to the waters highlights the existence of the deep need and the adequate provision of water for thirsty people. For thirsty people. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit, whom he had not yet given. Christ overflows with satisfaction. All authentic, real Christian experience comes from what he provides, not what we can scrounge up. But knowing that isn't enough, we must dive into this endless ocean. All that stands between us and God right now is our sulky unbelief. We don't have to deserve his blessing. We can't earn it. How can we buy what isn't for sale? But God has told us what to do. Come, come, come. Several years ago, back uh, when I was here the first time, my first sojourn in Las Vegas to plant this church, we went to uh, the base of Hoover Dam and went on a canoe trip from the base of Hoover Dam to Willow Beach, which is about 13 miles. And of course, Pam and I had never lived in the desert. We didn't know much about it. They said, be sure to pack plenty to drink. So I think I had some soda and maybe a, a chest with ice in it, but no real water. And so we get out on this thing and we're, pa uh, we're paddling and we're going down, we're making good time, we're feeling good. You know, it's not 120 yet and it was kind of early in the morning and we, we were enjoying ourselves greatly until we hit a little rough patch in the uh, Colorado River. And we, sh we sort of swayed over to the side and we just started going in circles. And, and, just, and, and, and I'm in the front of the boat, Pam's in the back of the canoe and I'm turning around and say, paddle harder. And she says, I'm paddling as hard as I can paddle. I am too. The only problem was she was paddling in the opposite direction that I was paddling in, <laughs> which meant we were going in circles and it was all her fault, I said, and it was all my fault, she said. We were both right and both wrong. But the guy that put the trip together showed up and he came and tied our boat to his boat. We put the two women in the back boat. He and I got in the front boat and we made time. We made it all the way down to Willow Beach. But when I got out of that boat or that canoe, I took that ice chest. I walked up to a picnic table. I opened the plug where you're supposed to drain it, laid myself down on the bench and let that water just flow. I was thirsty. I was, that's the most thirsty I've ever, I was dehydrated, obviously. And that's the image here is, it, it's like we're dehydrated, like we're sleepwalking. And the true rivers of life are available to us through word and spirit. He tells us, you who have no money, come. He highlights the poverty that, uh, uh, of the person who is needy. This is the purchase which is somehow free to the purchaser. Poverty is no barrier. Rather, the one who has no money is a welcome customer who will eat according to his need. And the greater the need, the closer to the kingdom you are. In other words, this is a picture of grace. This is another way of talking about grace. Unearned, unmerited, uh, in spite of goodness and kindness to those of us who know our need. God says, come, there's a feast for you, and it's free. You can buy it with no money. And it's not a soup kitchen. It's not a soup kitchen. The richest of food is here. He tells us, come by milk 
somewhat of a, a special thing, highlights the richness of what is offered. Not just water, and it's free, yet also you buy it. Even if the clients are beggars, there is a purchase price. Though they don't pay it, they bring their poverty to something already paid for. This is an allusion to, back in chapter 53 of Isaiah, the work of the servant, the suffering servant. The feast is one of love and forgiveness and acceptance, the water of refreshment, the wine of joy, the milk of richness, figurative of the Lord's salvation, the servant of the Lord at the center. His is the price. Ours is the freeness. All you need is to be thirsty. All you need is to be hungry. And there's more than enough for all and every person to come and enjoy this feast. But too often we're like the guys in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? What a description of idolatry. There's no payoff. When we worship other gods, when we say, if I could just have this or that, then my life would have meaning, then I would have peace, then I would have joy, then I would know fullness, then my life would make sense, then all suffering would be gone. If I could just get this, this elusive dream, this thing like smoke that I'm trying to nail to the wall, if I could just have that, and God's Word says, why are you doing this? You're on a fool's errand. This is craziness. Why are you doing it? It doesn't satisfy. It won't feed you. Where's the payoff you keep sacrificing everything for in this world? We have no reason to refuse God, and we have no reason to cling to our idols. That which is not bread cannot satisfy no matter how expensive it is, no matter how hard we try to make it work. Our world is a vast marketplace of unsatisfying but costly remedies for our God-shaped longing, but we are not very smart shoppers. We're always going to the wrong vending machine and trying to buy out of it something other than Jesus and trying to make that work for ourselves. That's what we're doing. And the Word of God comes to us and says, what are you doing? This is insanity. This is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. It's insanity. It is disillusionment. I read a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon uh, and it was quite poignant. It says, getting is better than having. When you get something, it's new and exciting. When you have something, you take it for granted and it's boring. But everything you get eventually turns into something you have. That's a pretty good description of what Christmas morning was like for me as a child. I always had some big gift under the tree, and I can remember getting up and just shaking with excitement. I can remember getting in the floor and playing with it all day. And then around about 6 o'clock, I had this overwhelming sense of emptiness and sadness. And it could have been stuffing myself with chocolate and other stuff all day, but I think it was just, uh, I, I just realized this is so exciting to get, but once you have it, it ain't nearly as exciting as it was anticipating it. And that's what idols do for you. Oh yeah, they're exciting. They seem to offer a plausible uh, approach to us finding some kind of something with our lives. 
But our self-chosen disillusionment with idols can often turn us against God. When we suffer and our self-pity rages at God, we snuggle up to the most comforting lies. How do we find our way back? Seeing through our lies isn't enough. The only way back is to look again at the servant of the Lord. We despised him. We rejected him as he suffered. But he was bearing our griefs. He was carrying our sorrows. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. But he didn't open his mouth against us or against God. In fact, he makes blasphemers to be accounted righteous. Looking again at him can calm our shrieking hatred and restore us to settling. God is calling us back to himself. And he explains his metaphor of buying and eating and how much the reality is worth to us. Uh, look at the following verses. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love. Sure love for David. Uh, during Keith's Sunday school class this morning, I kept thinking, has he already heard my sermon or read my sermon? Because about nine-tenths of what he's saying in the class is in, uh, in the sermon that I'm about to preach. God's open feast. He's serving rich food, the best that you can know. How do we taste his delights? By listening diligently to his word, with patience, with an open heart and an open mind, carefully pouring over the truth in the gospel, thinking it through over and over again and again. Jesus said this, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There's no other word that can speak to you that has both spirit and life. That's the power of God's Word. A living thing, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut and asunder between the soul and the spirit, and is a critic of the thoughts and motives and intents of our hearts. Why does the gospel work with life-giving power? Because eager listening to God's word is the same as coming to him. Incline your ear and come to me. How do we come to him? We come to him when we listen to his word. That's how he speaks to us. Now, it's amazing. He mentions the covenant with David. Uh, he says, to all whose hearts leap at the privilege, this is what God gives, an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. What's he saying? God made a promise, a pledge to David. King Saul had failed, so God replaced him with David. But God promised David that the, his dynasty would rule forever. Human failure couldn't undo it or destroy the covenant. It was factored actually into the covenant. How does this benefit us? Jesus Christ is the heir uh, of the Davidic crown and our true one king, if we will have him. And God is committed to the eternal triumph of the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not even death could stop him. He cannot fail. He covers the failings of all of his subjects. And God will never, ever back out of this arrangement. He calls it an eternal covenant. My steadfast covenant. My sure love for David. And the voice from heaven 
said of Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. God's love for us sinners is guaranteed by his love for his own son who has full and eternal approval. Why does the father love the son so much? John Flavel, a Puritan, pastor with antiquated English, helps us imagine the conversation between the father and the son at the pact of redemption in eternity past. Flavel says, Father, my son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? Son, O oh my Father, such is my love and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their representative. And so he says, bring, it, bring in all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them in, all of them, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand, you shall require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me will be all their debt. Father, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last cent. Expect no discounts. If I spared them, I will not spare you, son. Content, Father, let it be so. Charge to me all of it. I am able to pay it. And though it proved to be a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverished all my riches, empties all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Our salvation is more than the decisions we make in time. It flows from a covenant made in eternity. And the Father delights to keep his covenant with his beloved Son by drawing into the everlasting love of the triune Godhead, his people. He directs our attention away from ourselves to the messianic figure ordained for our salvation. He says in verses 4 and 5, Behold, I made him a witness to the people, a leader, a commander for the people. Behold, you shall call a nation you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you, because the Lord, your God, and the Holy One of Israel has glorified him. The him in this passage is again David. And the you in the third line is not the reader, but David again. The David of ancient history represented the rule of God to the nations from his throne of Israel. They were to rally around him. But only Jesus Christ, the son of David, can play the role of the Savior of the world. God has decreed it to be so. The high point of the nation Israel was not during David's reign, but during his son Solomon's reign, when the Queen of Sheba came to visit King Solomon, from Egypt, and when she saw him, she said, The half has not been told of the glory you possess. Well, Solomon pointed ultimately to the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom the nations see as beautiful and stream to him because of his beauty and his glory. So he says, Isaiah says, Behold, 
the glory of God. He has glorified you. Ultimate beauty is revealed through his birth, his teachings, his miracles, his humanity, his authority, his humility, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his reign. And the gospel advances today as the nations see his glory. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. The banquet of God's grace is certainly free and abundant. But we have a responsibility. A relational responsibility. The reason why we are thirsty is because we are wicked. That's why. We have some adjusting to do, and our opportunity is limited. The door is wide open now, but it will eventually close. What do we need to be busy doing? We need to seek the Lord. It's to stop dwindling and dawdling and to become intentional about him, setting our highest value on him. I remember back in my early 20s, I had had a period where I was away from the church because I thought I was smarter than God. And uh, I learned really quickly I'm not, and neither are you, but maybe some of you will have to learn it like I did. And I appeared to being away from the Lord, and when I came back, I was in a real mess. My life was a total, unhinged mess, a hot mess. And so I'd been going to this church, and this guy was preaching. He was preaching the Bible. I never heard anybody in my life ever preach like this guy could preach. I mean, I couldn't wait to get to church to hear him week after week after week because his preaching was so powerful. And so I did something that I probably swore I'd never do. I made an appointment to go see him for counseling. And I remember going in his office, and I remember sitting down in the chair, and I remember pouring out my soul before him, probably TMI, way too much information, about the details of all the stuff I'd been into and what I'd been involved in. And I laid it all out before him. He didn't bat an eye. He didn't, he didn't move at all. He just listened. He had a big smile on his face the whole time, no matter what I said. And when it was all over, he just leaned forward and he said, Tim, buddy, that's what he called me, Tim, buddy. He said, you just need to seek the Lord. Now, that's the last thing he said to me. And I remember getting up and leaving the office, and I'm going, gosh, I could have gotten that out of a box of Cracker Jacks. <laughs> Seek the Lord. What in the world does that mean? Well, for the next several weeks, he must have been smarter than I knew he was or the Holy Spirit was. I began to seek the Lord. What does that mean? You place the highest value upon connecting with him. He is your reason for being. You're intentional about it. You remove everything that keeps you from him. You hear his word without sass, without back talk, up, opening up to his will, uh, without preconditions, uh, budgeting our time and our money for this cause first. Uh, seeking the Lord is a whole life realignment with Christ. We stop treating him as sort of the religious garnish on our plate, and he becomes our continual feast. He becomes that which defines our center. And that time to move in his direction is now. He is near to us. He's not far off. He's not aloof. He's not unavailable. He invites us to call upon him while he is still near. Our part is to reject ourselves, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. How could it be otherwise? 
our ways and thoughts trivialize God. We, we totally do not get the concept of a transcendent God. We're such, such making a, of God in our own image, only he's stronger and better and a greater extension of ourselves. No, he is not. He is a being with which we can only know by analogy. He is transcendent. He is other. He is holy. He is set apart. And our minds are so twisted by the world we live in and the sinful nature that we possess that when, when we think we can think our thoughts after him without him speaking to us through his word, that's ridiculous. We have no idea who God is. No idea. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. Put those thoughts away. Our th ways and thoughts trivialize God. We exalt ourselves in our status quo and our adequacy and our okayness. But the truth is we are wrong. And what's wrong with us is everything we are, right down to our thoughts. We are so tolerant of our sins, especially if we maintain a superficial, technical righteousness. We've lost the real and radical edge of Christianity and the gospel. If we want to feast at the eternal banquet, God is showing us the way. Could he state it more plainly than Isaiah 55, 6 and 7? Our only path forward is as obvious as it is radical. God is calling for a complete overhaul. God is calling us to place ourselves under his scrutiny, welcoming his ways above our ways. And his thoughts completely unfamiliar to us, but clearly stated in his word. God is calling us to repent, to turn around, to wake up and come home to him. Humbly accepting his call and courageously following through is nothing less than repentance. I will return to the Lord. He is worth it. If we submit to the power of repentance, God will meet our trust not with abusive scoldings. He will show us compassion and generous pardon. Why do we need to repent so urgently? Because God's thoughts and ways are high above our ways as heavens are above the earth. The gap is wide. We stay, uh, we, we may not see much wrong in our lives. But what matters is how God sees us. What he says about us, our intuitive feelings and well-established habits can't be defended. They need to be re-examined. We need to go back to the school and enroll in God's course, Christianity 101. Jesus said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Our expe uh, expectations of God are small. The logic of grace does not connect with us. We never really actually get it. But realizing that humbles us, and, and which is the beginning, uh, the middle, and the end of salvation. If we keep listening humbly to our, the word, God will surprise us with what he can do. But then he moves to this beautiful imagery in verses 10 and 11. I don't know where we are on our points. I think uh, we've looked at the urgent call. Now we're looking at the efficacious word. Efficacious sounds like a fancy 50-cent word, but all it means is it affects 
what it calls for. The Word calls us to repentance. The Word creates repentance. Remember how creation happened in the first place in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, uh, God uh, and he, uh, uh, spoke into existence the heavens and the earth. And then he formed it, then he filled all of creation, but God spoke. We call it ex nihilo, that is out of nothing. God didn't use pre-existent materials. He doesn't need pre-existent materials. He just speaks and it happens. And when you are converted to Christianity, you become a new creation in G Jesus Christ. God speaks his word to you and it creates in you what the word calls for. He gifts you both repentance and faith. He creates that turning. He produces a Copernican revolution of the heart we call repentance, and you become a new creature. And God has shined his light and shown us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's how it works. But he gives us a beautiful image here of something. God's people living in the promised land were forced to look for, uh, in faith, to a life source beyond their surroundings. Egypt had the Nile River to keep them alive. Mesopotamia had the Tigris and Euphrates. But Canaan had only rain and not a constant flow, but a seasonal intervention. If the rains didn't come, people starved to death. God located his people where they had to live by faith in him, not once, but always and continually. Even the Jewish exiles in Babylon carried a mem memory of this. They understood that rain was the difference between life and death. And a uh, drought was the evidence of a, a covenant curse upon the people. God's word is like the rain, Isaiah says. How so? One, the true life comes from beyond us. We can't control it. We can only receive it. Two, true life comes from death. We can't quench it. It saturates us and we flourish. True life fulfills the purpose of God. We can't defeat his delight, and his delight makes us more than conquerors. My word in verse 11 sums up all of God's gracious promises in the book of Isaiah up to this point. The prophet comes full circle where he says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now we know that God's promises not only last, they give us life. We don't keep the hope of the gospel alive. This hope keeps us alive. Like rain, it may take time for new life to fully burst forth, but rain never fails. Neither does the promise of God to save sinners. In fact, in the end, we will be better than we ever hoped or dreamed. Now, this next one is beautiful. You have creation, as it were, on a display better than any fireworks event you would ever see uh, on New Year's Eve here in Las Vegas. By lighting the firework display of his bright hope, two things stand out. The sheer objectivity of the gospel, however you and I may respond to God's promise, the creation will respond. It will explode with joyful freedom when God brings his saving purposes to fulfillment. 
all of this nature dancing and singing and parading. What is that about? That is God. Creation presently, according to the book of Romans in chapter 8, is groaning under the curse, waiting for the sons of men to be revealed. That is the second coming of Jesus Christ, the consummation of all things. When creation will dance, as it were, it will explode in all of its brilliance. We think we see beauty now. We have no idea. We have no idea of the glory that will be revealed even in creation. And creation obeys God's commands. The magnitude of the gospel is our salvation includes within its scope the whole created order. As Keith said today, a place where God will dwell. God will dwell in the midst of his people. There will be a location, a new heaven, a new earth, and God will dwell there. And we will need the sun no longer. And there'll be no more sea. There'll be no more chaos. There'll, there'll be no more upheaval. There'll be no more things that grieve us and hurt us and drive us nuts. But Isaiah is saying the Word of God is promising. It's painting a picture the best it can of realities that are impossible for our mind to wrap around. I remember the first time I read this, I just thought, is this guy smoking something? Uh, Isaiah? I mean, you know, or taking some kind of dropping acid or something. He said, it shall make a name for the Lord, the renewed creation, enjoy by a new humanity, ruled by the unchanging Christ. The whole point of this massive salvation is to display forever what kind of person God is. The curse will be reversed, and never again will there be another human fall like Adam's. Our salvation will be an everlasting sign that we shall not be cut off. We will eternally experience the glory of God. The quote I had in your bulletin in the very front comes from Peter Kreeft. And I know he's Roman Catholic. You don't have to tell me that. He did go to Calvin College, by the way, and Calvin Seminary. But he is, at least he got this right. Listen. Now suppose death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have for free, free for the asking, your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you're guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny, less a scratch on a penny. Profound thought. The reality, the eternal weight of glory far exceeds any suffering we will now experience or know. Now all of that is in Isaiah 50. I just sort of skidded across the high places. But the beauty of it is God's Word is a living, liberating, powerful thing. And in the year 2021, we need to be soaking ourselves. We need the mind of Christ. We need the mind of God. Where do we get it? We get it from His Word. How much time do you intentionally spend in God's Word in a week's time? How much time? How much time are you thinking about these things? How much is the Word of God transforming and renewing your mind to approve uh, God's will, which is great and acceptable? How much time?
If we're truly saved by grace, our gratitude should drive us to want to know this God with all of our hearts. But we're too busy chasing things that don't satisfy or feed us. Our fears, our desires. C.S. Lewis once said they're way too small. but that he tells us what he's like and reveals himself to us. So what about you? Are you going to come and get up? Or get up first and then come? Are you going to do that? Are you going to listen this year? Are you going to come? Are you going to come over and over and drink deeply from the rivers of living water? Feed yourself upon the bread of God's Son. All which is imaged for us in the Lord's Supper. You think about that and you do something about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We know there's so much more here than we've ever touched on, but what we heard was enough. We do pray that your word would create in us a passion for you, that your word would create in us repentance that you would call us to yourself and we would keep coming, keep coming, not just come once, but keep coming, keep coming, over and over. Lord, we know, most of us, in the very secret place of our heart, that the taste of Jesus and the fulfillment he brings is unlike any other thing we do, and yet we find ourselves chasing everything else. Lord, turn us and return us to yourself. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we give as people who have returned to you. In Jesus' name, amen.